Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Coast, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Ellaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast, The Brief, our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Molitsis, and I'm here with Kara Zelaya. She is guest hosting, guest co-hosting once again, because Carrie Ellevelt is still out. It's been a couple of weeks. It's, it's apparently... The illness is ping-ponging amongst family members, so um, that's rough. Hopefully, she's going to get better, and we'll have her next week. But Kara, as always, is available and so willing and uh, good at co-hosting. So I'm so excited to have you, Kara. Thank you so much once again for filling in on short notice. It's my pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. So today we're going to be talking about North Carolina. We've been talking about different states and talking to grassroots organizations doing on-the-ground activism. And we've been saying it, and we're going to keep saying it uh, for the duration of forever, I guess, forever. The biggest bang for your political dollar is grassroots organizations on the ground doing direct voter outreach. These are the people that are getting people registered to vote. They create the relationships with these voters to to help them out, to engage them in lobbying, in activism, getting them to the polls. This is the best money you can spend. What happens, Carrie, you know this, is everybody comes in, they get all excited the last few months of the election. Campaigns raise tens of millions of dollars thanks to our amazing fundraising infrastructure like AppBlue, but that money just goes into TV ads that don't move a single person. These campaigns don't have the capacity to spend that money late to build a ground game. Now, a year before the election, is the time to fund grassroots organizing, infrastructure, capacity building, and there are no campaigns to do that right now. They're, yeah. they're really. So this is the best money you will ever donate Absolutely. And like, right. So, Kara, I mean, we have a we have a fundraising, uh, ActBlue fundraising slate now. We're going to include that in all the places the show is distributed so that you can donate to the organizations that we are featuring. And today that's going to be North Carolina's Black Alliance uh, Deputy Director Marcus Bass. And he's going to tell us about what's happening in his state. And you know why, Kara, you know why North Carolina is so important next year, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always an important thing for building uh, the, the the grassroots movement for elections, obviously, in North Carolina is always about for presidential elections. It's always a battleground for that. But especially during midterms when it comes to the Senate, I mean, North Carolina is so absolutely vital. And, and right now we have just to lay of the land. Most of you already know this, but just in case it's a 50-50 Senate with Kamala Harris, the VP, as a Democratic tiebreaker. However, we don't really have a true majority because West Virginia's Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona have decided that they're going to be obstructionists of their own party's agenda. So we have a next year. It's going to be absolutely critical for two reasons. One, it's going to be a tough election just in in general, it's going to be a tough election because the midterm election of the first term president is always a bit of a bloodbath historically. 
Yeah, I mean, remembering the Obama years and how just, I mean, that was truly the, the start of the, the Tea Party, which we can see uh, has led into, I mean, you can make the argument led into 2016 um, and everything that we see right now with all these, you know, patriots who are honestly trying to do undemocratic things and, and upend our, our democracy without exaggeration. And so it's really important during these midterms that we as we are building the coalitions, and like you said in the beginning, that we are building the infrastructure early so that they can hire staff members locally, not just to win elections, but to have organizations that show up and show people that, you know, the, the progressive movement is here and it's it's here to stay. It is not just a fad of elections. It is a, a thing that is concerted and caring about people. I think last week's episode was a really good example of that. If for listeners who haven't listened to it, go back and listen to the Michigan episode. We had some really great guests that spoke about this, about how, you know, we care about elections because we can't get anything done without them, right? But we can't win or, or push for our agenda without a mandate. But it is also important that we show up beyond the elections and that's that's what we're trying to do here and that's why we're having these conversations yeah these these campaigns are fantastic uh these organizations are fantastic in that regard because a campaign a political campaign their job is to get somebody elected and once they're elected they kind of disappear yeah and there may be an email list but that email list is really focused on the next election and trying to to raise money in those in those in between times between elections an organization like the North Carolina Black Alliance uh, or last year's We the People Michigan, or last year's, last week's We the People Michigan, they're not just trying to get people involved and engaged politically, electorally, but once the election's over, then they shift over into them sort of using that power that they earned in the election to get good legislation passed or in, in states where Republicans are, are in charge to block bad legislation from happening. So these are enduring institutions that build that grassroots power and enable communities that really don't get a lot of attention um, Black, brown, Asian, whatever, these communities that, that are sort of ignored by the mainstream political parties and candidates, they, you know, these people show up in the middle of an election and then disappear. They take some of these communities for granted, either because they assume, well, black voters are going to be Democratic anyway, or they may assume the the more even more nefarious is they're not going to vote. So why are we going to waste time trying to appeal people who aren't going to vote? Uh Organizations like North Carolina Black Alliance are going to be actually engaged on the ground in perpetuity, which is why this money is so incredibly well spent. And, and we hope that you not just donate to North Carolina Black Alliance or We the People Michigan or any of the organizations we're going to be talking to in the coming weeks and months, but that you do so maybe even with a sustainable donation, a monthly, regular, even if it's $10 a month, that money is going to be the best bang for the buck, I promise. And North Carolina is a really, it's a tough, tough state. It is, you know, you see states like Arizona and and. Georgia, and you go, okay, yeah, they're trending our direction. Texas, right. they're trending our direction. North Carolina, it's kind of like Florida. It seems to be stuck at a slight Republican lean. Yeah. So Barack Obama won the state in 2008, and then Mitt Romney won it, and Donald Trump won it twice. Now, we can maybe get, you know, be heartened by the fact that Donald Trump won it by, I don't know, about five points in 2016. And he only won it by one and a half points in 2020, right? So that margin closed. But we saw that big surge in progressive turnout in other states like Michigan, uh, Arizona, Georgia. 
And so even with a surge, that but wasn't enough to to tilt the state in our direction. Now, what it did do is it helped us win the governorship. And that's a bright spot in North Carolina politics is that Democrats have held the governorship for pretty much every cycle except one four-year period since 2000. Yeah. But the the state legislature is Republican. Both senators have been Republican since John Edwards last held the seat. Yeah, that John Edwards held the seat (laughs) back in 2006, I think was the last. And it's been held by Republicans ever since. It is a tough state, but it's they're not winning by a lot. This is not Ohio or Iowa or even Missouri a few years ago that were sort of battleground states and then have heavily shifted towards Republicans. This is a state that's just barely hovering, just feeling like out of reach. And so I'm really excited, Kara, to talk to our guest today. You're going to be joining us in a little bit to talk to our guest about if you know, how gettable North Carolina is, what we need to do to close that gap. Is, is that possible? Is that something that's within reach, within target? And what will it take to get there because Kara, I'm tired of mansion and cinema. I'm tired of oh mansion my. and cinema. It is unbearable. And I'm sure that North like that we are that North Carolina is as concerned as everyone in the, you know, so called like I mean North Carolina is a coast state, but the, the coastal elite, you know, language that we hear constantly. Like we're concerned about what's going on with COVID. I you know, I'm sure North Carolina is being greatly impacted on being basically on the second year of a global pandemic. I'm sure that they're greatly concerned about everything that has been going on in the filibuster in our democracy. And so, like always, elections don't show all of the on the ground work that is happening. And the fact that North Carolina has been able to have the governorship is, I think, telling. I say this as a Floridian who's constantly like, wait, wait, don't leave us. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I always want uh, to sort of do that rallying call for folks to be like, wait, wait, just because it's leaning Republican doesn't mean it's it's a lost cause. And I'm really excited to hear from from the activists and, and from the grassroots organizers because they, of course, know best. Yeah, and, and they're actually ready to go. And so we're going to bring him in and uh, I'm excited to do so. So today joining us is Marcus Bass. He's the deputy director of North Carolina Black Alliance. And also joining us is Lamisha Whittington. I, I hope I pronounced her name correctly. She is a campaign director at North Carolina Black Alliance. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Kara. Um, it's amazing to see behind the scenes. This is an exciting time to be here. And I, I love the ramp up to North Carolina. You explained this quite well. Yeah, thanks for having us. Good to be here. So I'm going to ask both of you guys, Marcus and, and Lamisha. And Lamisha, did I, did I pronounce your name correctly? It's Lamisha, but please feel free to call me L.A. Everybody calls me L.A. That's fine. L.A.? Yeah. Right. LA. Okay, I'll call you L.A. So I, I'd like to ask both of you, Marcus, you can maybe start, is is we like to talk about the origin story of our guests. It's what got you into politics, because we get so many twists and turns and things that are unexpected. So this is always a great place to start. So Marcus, can you sort of tell us your political origin story? I'm I'm black in America. My origin story in politics is uh, demanded by (laughs) virtue of our experience here, but more directly, uh, Marcos, I uh, have had the pleasure of being immersed in local politics from a very young age. My mom worked at the courthouse and my father was in state law enforcement. And so the political winds that bind uh, the process determined who was going to be my parents' boss. And in effect, we watched the political process at a very early age because it meant 
our daily existence. And after going through a, a very interesting rural education, I decided to attend North Carolina A&T, which is actually home uh, to the birthplace of the student activism during the civil rights movement. The sit-in, the first sit-in spark happened when four freshmen sat down at a lunch counter. Fast forward from 1960 to 2008, a very critical election was happening at North Carolina A&T. And in that process, I became engaged like a lot of individuals before then, had some um, different interesting conversations with dynamics of power, even on a college campus, that showed me that you have to move the political system. It's not going to do what you intended it to do. And so uh, as fate would have it, after I graduated, I served in a bunch of different capacities, worked for Common Cause, North Carolina, Democracy North Carolina, some good organizations in the state, but then saw the need for building black independent political power that's not necessarily tied to a political system, in this case, into the Democrat or Republican Party, because oftentimes these parties don't do what people of color need them to do. And I uh, have been very uh, excited and energetic and um, enthusiastic, rather, about working with the Black Alliance and have been here now for coming on four years. Yeah. Uh, L.A., what's, what's, can you tell us your story as well? Well, similar to Marcus, uh, being Black in America, um, I'm an Afro-Indigenous woman, uh, so my people come from the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina, and we've been here before America was America. Uh, and so growing up, it was very rural, right, and seeing the landscape change from, you know, farming, our, you know, culture is a long line of farmers, a long line of sustainable agriculture, and realizing that, you know, manufacturing jobs were moving in, and then rapidly during my parents, they moved out and became prison jobs. So I saw many of my community either be incarcerated by the system mm-hmm. or have to work for the the very same system that their cousins, their brothers, their sisters were incarcerated by. And so that radicalized me very early on. It was the love of community and the close-knit of who we were. I remember my mother actually going to um, her first city council meeting to protest a dirty corporation about to move into our, uh, literally our backyard. Um, and I remember as a child really wanting to do that. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. And it was because of seeing that matriarchal lineage about we didn't see it as politics. We saw it as fighting to protect the land, to protect the air, to protect the water. And so that's what I saw myself doing. And that's what I've done. Uh, and when I moved to Raleigh, it was actually to come to a PWI, the only white institution. Uh, growing up, we had like vague uh, information about HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. So moving to the capital of North Carolina, I was introduced to HBCUs and fell in love with them, even though I was a student in the PWI. And so just that long line of working in environmental justice, working for a national organization to impede pipelines, to actually stop like the, the travestation of our water being contaminated, uh, you know, led me on this winding path to meet Marcus, to join this incredible team and to continue this work to say, you know, political freedom is liberation on the land because our freedom is tied. It's tied together. So speaking about this organization, Marcus, can you tell us what the North Carolina Black Alliance actually does? So the North Carolina Black Alliance is a 501c3 organization. Um, We focus on uh, different areas of commitment in the Black community. We talk about an agenda. If you've ever heard any conversation politically about the Black community, it's always, what's the Black agenda? Well, the Black agenda has never changed. If you actually go back and look at the March on Washington, even though in this current form, March on Washington uh, was about jobs, it was about police brutality, it was about ending the filibuster, and here we are, you know, uh, <laughs> 60 years later, still talking about the same issue. So it's not the agenda. But the North Carolina Black Alliance does work around several different commitment areas, political effectiveness and personal responsibility, crime and justice, access to health care, environmental justice, education, economic empowerment. And through this process where we work with the key institutions in Black community or in community in general, the church, uh, our 
HBCUs or black college students in particular attending these 10. North Carolina has 10 HBCUs more than uh, a lot others in the country, definitely in the South. Uh, also are black elected officials. All these institutions serve very integral functions in community. And we work in the Black Alliance to help build capacity, provide resources, we're a commitment holder, and we make sure that we provide space for folks in community to come together to talk because believe it or not, there is no handbook that teaches you how to engage in the democratic process. And if left up to partisan uh, devices, only time we would see black and brown folks engaged in the process is during the election cycle, and then that's it. So I think we have to make sure that we have a 365-day-a-year political engagement, and that's what we help do in the Black Alliance. Yeah, Marcus, that's exactly what we've been talking about with this sort of fall season of the brief, where we're talking about the fact that this isn't just about elections, but boots on the ground doing the work day in and day out. And LA, I would love to hear from you about what you are hearing being on the ground as the main issues that North Carolinians are really concerned about in the last couple of years. Right. So as we're all very well aware, we're still in the middle of the pandemic, but our communities have been in a pandemic before this pandemic. Uh, and sometimes we call it the hundredth pandemic because what has changed since the last pandemic hundred years ago? Not much. Marcus really just laid that out with the Million Man March, right? So our communities are still talking about access to health care, access to health equity. Over half a million of our community members lost health insurance just last year alone. Right. This is coupled with the utility burdens. We know that in 2019, before the pandemic came in, 225,000 individuals had power shutoffs from just one utility company. That doesn't include the co-ops. It doesn't include unregulated utilities. Folks were already struggling to keep the lights on. That has only been made worse, exacerbated now. And so utilities, rental assistance, that should be a human right. Right. That's what folks are dealing with is how can I stay home to be safe? When I'm at risk of being evicted because I've lost my job, how can I run my CPAP machine for oxygen? How can I run my nebulizer with asthma when I actually need electricity at home? And so the last thing, you know, I'll say to say those are some of the issues on, on the ground. Right. You know, last year and we talk about democracy and how it's tied. And like Marcus mentioned, we have to be there for our people before the polls come open because our folks are at risk of loss of life, be it a hurricane or a disaster that is, you know, East North Carolina is impacted what used to be 500-year storms or every other year, right? Now we have flooding and landslides in the mountains. That never happened as someone from the mountains. Sorry, that's, that's very rare. Gentrification, land development, misuse of land use. These are some of the impacts. And then when we talk about last year before the elections, 18,000 folks were evicted in a single month. 15,000 contracted COVID-19 due to being evicted. Close to 400 died. This was leading into elections. Now, we are going to prioritize humanity here, right? That's what we're dealing with. But if we also want to say the impact on elections, we saw a race for our Supreme Court justice. Okay, that race was lost by just a mere few hundred votes. But did we take into account the lives that were lost? Or in, guess what? Tumultuous travesty because they had to be evicted and they're running to find shelter. So that's some of the impact on the ground. Not all, but at least that hopefully gives a snapshot of what we're dealing with. Is there a is there a connection with people between that situation on the ground and the political process, the electoral process, as a as a part of the solution to that problem? Um, or is there just a bit of politics don't matter? I'm not going to engage because nothing's ever going to change. Like what, what's the feeling on the ground? 
Sure. Um, and I can do a little bit in there, Marcus, if you want to uh, tag team on this one. Um, so as far as when we talk about our organizations, our organizations are unique in the sense that we are the conduit. And the reason I say that as a bridge is sometimes there is hopelessness on the ground. Sometimes there is where's that connection to the agencies to say they have, you know, this rescue relief plan, this American, like where's the rental assistance? And then there's organizations like ours that are actually convening the conversations with those government agencies. We have to be the bridge. And what are we doing responsibly? that doesn't just bring hope to folks, but brings resources. And so we found ourselves all last year creating these virtual programs, even though some of our communities still deal with a broadband deficit that was talking about keep the lights on town hall. And then we would lead like personal conversations behind the scenes one-on-one with these government agencies to say, hey, by the way, here's a list of folks who turned in an application for rental assistance, they still haven't heard back. What can we do? And so I, the way I answer that is I can't speak for, you know, black culture. We're not a monolith. But what I can say is that's why you're seeing the work be so dynamic and so broad is because the issues are broad. And so is the hopelessness. Yeah, the only thing I'll add is that um, political uh, engagement, really running for office, is a middle to upper class game. Right. And so when you look at the number of folks that run for office that are lawyers, doctors, folks that have advanced degrees, most of these folks make well above uh, the median income in North Carolina and across the country. And imagine how far the disconnect is between folks that are in elected office and folks that are living the everyday experience that L.A. mentioned. And so we have to work to make sure that we're leveling the playing field by providing opportunity for folks that are directly impacted to speak to power, because power is not going into the communities that are harmed because of some of these issues that we uh, focus on every single day. Even during a hurricane, uh, folks fly over in the moment, but then they leave for the long-term you know, effort that has to come back into restoring communities. It takes us making sure that we're putting the people directly in front of the decision makers and holding them accountable. I fully agree. And, and, and I'm so excited to hear that, that this work is happening and that, that you, you all are, are spearheading it. I would love to know what, uh, this is a question that we've been asking every week, what early money, money that comes in consistently, how that can be used at your organization uh, to do long-term projects uh, in the upcoming years? That's a, that's a very good question. Number one, we're not out of the pandemic by any stretch of the imagination. When you look at what it takes to launch expansive field campaigns in community, being authentic and engaged in the midst of COVID-19, it takes a lot more than even two years ago. Um, when we talk about raising digital communication in communities that typically, as LA said, don't even have access to broadband internet, how do we take information and put it at your disposal, at your phone? How do we create those apps? How do we create vibrant podcasts? We do a, a series called When They See Us Vote. LA hosts a series uh, called uh, Advanced Notice, where we give a deep dive every quarter around these political issues to folks that don't have time to sit in a city council meeting or in a county commissioner meeting. So funding uh, early on helps us make sure that we have vibrant programs that reach community, digital and on the ground. Thinking about how in the midst of COVID-19, we have to provide masks for everyone. Last year, we produced uh, a program, Voter, Safe Voter NC, that created specifically mail packages, 175 voter safety kits, PPE for voters to vote in person. And on top of that, we text thousands of individuals making sure that they knew their registration status had to be up to date. And if there were any problems on the day of, we work with organizations to make sure not only were there tents in community for folks at the polling locations to get information, we also made sure that we did the souls to the polls where we have the faith community go in mass 
in the midst of COVID, we also have another pandemic called voter suppression, racist voter intimidation in North Carolina. And these mass mobilization efforts, they can't happen without sustained giving. We can't plan a march overnight. And so when we talk about uh, taking people from uh, the political process into the power building process, it is an intense investment and it has to happen early. And I'll say this, the corners of North Carolina and the corners of the country that we have to reach now that are being um, misinformed about the political process, disengaged based on their uh, life, quality of life not changing, is gonna take that much more to move in community. We just can't helicopter in organizers. We have to have folks that are there 365, committed to staying in community, just like we're committed to being in these issues. And so early investment helps us make sure we can get on the ground early, in community early, with vibrant programs, making sure we're reaching every segment of the population possible to make sure voter turnout is dynamic as it was in 2020. And then after that, Kara, we have to make sure that we're fighting back on the process. We always scapegoat the black and brown community for not voting, but when we vote in record numbers, what happens? We end up getting massive voter suppression laws rain down on us. We end up seeing uh, folks marginalized just by virtue of not being uh, fully re-enfranchised after they're released from prison. And we have to make sure that we are working very hard, even before the election cycle, to fund and resource these programs and projects. LA, I, 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 I'd like you to answer the same question, but from the perspective of somebody who's more directly on the ground doing this kind of work, what, what does that, being a, the ability to fund your work and your colleagues, what, what does that allow you to do now that you can't do two months before the election? Right. So some of the examples, right? So we um, actually became aware, and this is a really good example, we became aware on the ground in our largest watershed. It, produced, it provides water for 1.5 million North Carolinians in eastern North Carolina, was actually poisoned directly by a corporation. They dumped millions and millions of chemicals, like gallons of chemicals called PFAS. That chemical, if it's in your bloodstream, it actually threatens the viability of the vaccine. So if that chemical is in your bloodstream, 99% of our people in East North Carolina have this chemical in their bloodstream due to that contamination. When we're talking about the impact on the ground, we also have to say, as we're doing COVID-19 relief, as we're doing, as Marcus said, the PPE relief, we also have to make, make sure that we have the appropriate educational materials, the appropriate, like still social distancing, make sure folks are fed, clothed, and safe, but that makes it much more dangerous to do that when you realize, even when we're supporting the vaccine support, some of our communities may need an extra hand above that, and what does that actually mean on the ground? And so that's why it's extremely important. We're talking about resources. Guess what? Churches depending on their status, especially rural churches, they're not eligible for reimbursement from FEMA when it comes time for hurricane disaster. That's the same eastern area with the contamination. When we're talking about the fact that we have more hogs than people, 40 to 1, and that contamination has created asthma, bronchial issues, lung cancer, that's the same part of the state as the contamination. That's also a part of, you, you get the picture, right? So when we're talking about like micro scale, it's also about how are we general operating expenses. It's great to have the flexibility to be able to make sure that we can reimburse churches in a way when they're clothing and feeding people, when they're running away from that disaster, at the same time of making sure they're short up with that PPE, to make sure that they actually have those voter safety kits. It has to be both because folks have to be sheltered. They have to be safe. And they also have to be politically engaged in order to create an economic survival. And we hope economic mobility, but I'm saying economic survival because that's where we're at. Yeah, I... Uh... <laughs> 
goodness. That's so tough to hear about the contamination. And it's something that we've been with when we spoke to folks from Michigan and they were talking about, you know, Flint and, and of course, uh, Detroit being a place that now, you know, residents who have lived there their whole lives are being priced out of. Um, and we're just seeing this constantly over and over across the country, how locally there is such a big importance for this work. And that brings me to, to local politics and to the state uh, governorship and to all of your state elected officials. Basically, how do you see the um, the, the campaigns or, or the movement towards the folks at the state level, in the case of the governorship, being able to stay in power, but also to be able to get a few more seats to be able to actually push through these legislations that are so important for your state? And, and actually, to layer on that question, um, we don't know what the new maps look like. And looking at the homepage of your organization, it's all about redistricting. So it's clearly something you guys are really focused on. So if you could tie in the importance of redistricting, maybe give us an update of how that process is, what it's looking like, and then what might be our chances to regain the state legislature next year if things go well. Well, I'll start by saying this. Um, the Democrats had power in North Carolina for a long time, over a century, and the quality of life for black and brown residents wasn't that much better. Uh, we still had to fight to make sure access uh, to the basic needs were met by residents. Uh, it was uh, during that time where we were still embattled with some of the same racist uh, voter legislation that we're dealing with today. As a matter of fact, this is the same Democratic Party uh, that uh, doubled down on slavery uh, and, and even though we like to think that we live in a different society now and the Democratic Party now is different than what it was then, there's still individuals that are registered Democrat that are uh, just as racist in local government and local politics as their predecessors were. And so I think uh, the reality is, even though we're shifting and even though North Carolina is moving back towards a more balanced Democratic government, uh, we still have to push and we have to fight. Now, that being said, Number one, the governor's office is now in control by the Democrats, which was a battle uh, that didn't just happen over one political cycle. And in some cases, when you look at the fight back that happened in 2018 to break the supermajority that the Republicans had, it was because of the down ballot emphasis that made that election possible. We didn't go into community talking about um, voting for the legislative races alone. We talked about the power of sheriff. We talked about the power of district attorney. We talked about the power of clerk of court, taking it back to my origin story, as you said, Marcos. We talked about where the power lies at a local level and the fact that local politics alone can't break. But local politics has the power by three votes or more per precinct, three votes or fewer per precinct. You can shift the local election. And on top of that, there's levels of power on a state level that we can help move. Well, in this case, not just the legislature. Uh, we also have to move the council of state. Uh, North Carolina has a, a bifurcated council of state where right now we have a radical lieutenant governor that just went on um, in a church in a pulpit and called individuals um, based on their uh, based on their life. Uh, expect, they call, literally called individuals that were uh, made a homophobic slur in a pulpit in the middle of a heightened political climate. We have uh, a number of individuals, even in the school uh, systems. The state superintendent is in battle right now by uh, a 30-year ruling that demands that North Carolina is not meeting its constitutional mandate. These issues are not solely about the legislature, but we have to keep pushing 
at this local legislative level to shift power. The governor having uh, veto power is nothing without a balance in the General Assembly and a balance in the courts. Our Supreme Court, uh, L.A. mentioned earlier, is still in a position to where uh, it is mainly controlled by Republicans, just like our federal Supreme Court. And when we look at how uh, the balance of power, every piece of legislation in North Carolina recently has gone to the Supreme Court. Uh, to be decided upon. The lawmakers in the General Assembly can't make the right decision for the people, and the courts have always had to decide. And so we have to push very hard in the legislative level. Uh, we think that in the House, uh, there is a little bit less work that we have to do to break uh, that majority than in the Senate. But we're following the process to make sure, regardless of what side of the aisle people are on, that you have a fair shake at the process, the 56,000 individuals that are returning into population, even if they have a felony conviction, making sure that they're registered, uh, making sure that they're able to vote and working with organizations that are still fighting those court cases to ensure that whenever we do come back into the process of voting for midterms, that 400 deficit that we ended up seeing the demise of a state Supreme Court justice, the first black woman that ran for Supreme Court being undermined by 400 votes, we know the things that we're doing, pushing more folks to the polls, is being challenged by individuals that don't want to see that women representation at the Supreme Court level, that don't want to see the legislature back in a, um, in a more balanced uh, era of control and power. But we always have to keep in mind that regardless of how hard we push, even with Democrats back in office, we'll have to push that much harder to hold them accountable. Because again, partisan politics is not always change the quality of life for those that are impacted the most in this political process. When we're talking, you know, the LA Coast is, is focused on sort of the national big picture, and we like to sort of drill down into what it means in the state. I don't think a lot community, our readers often get that, though. I don't think it's as sexy as how do we get rid of Kristen Cinema? And so it's always really important to talk about how, yeah, it's important to win these elections and what it takes to win these elections. But I really appreciate both of your perspective on how that impacts people on the ground. Because in the day, in the end, at the end of the day, this isn't a game. This is not a video game where we're winning for the sake of winning. It's not even sports. It's not the Super Bowl. Because in the end, who cares who wins the Super Bowl? We celebrate for a day and then we move on. This actually has lasting impact on people's lives. And so it matters on such a deep, visceral level. And I don't want us to lose that because um, – it, 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 when you talk about losing this election by 400 votes, it wasn't like, oh, shucks, we lost the election by 400 votes, so we're moving on. It actually, in the end, is going to measurably impact people's lives in a poor and in a worse way. So, you know, early on in the show, I don't, I don't know if you'd, you'd arrived just yet in the green room, but we were talking about how some of the states we talk about are maybe states like Arizona and Georgia that are trending into the Democrats' way. And then there are states like Michigan, Wisconsin that have been sort of trending against us, right? And we're just clinging, clinging to those states. Then there's Florida and North Carolina that seem to be sort of hovering. <laughs> so um, if you look, you know, I went back and I looked at the elections in the Senate and the governor's race, and we're talking winning or losing by like three points. That seems to be the norm. Every election is painfully close. There's a, there's a wave election here. There's a blowout there. But essentially, every election is painfully close. Now, in 2020, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, margin of victory shrunk. He only won North Carolina by about 60,000 votes at one and a half points. He had won it by three times as much, I think, in 2016. Does that, where does that put North Carolina? Does it mean that it's trending in the right direction, that all that work means that 
that that we can claw back more points and eventually turn North Carolina into a true purple state and maybe eventually a uh, uh, a blue state, or are we still just sort of hovering back and forth within that three point margin of of victory? So we can't ignore gerrymandering. Right. And so, you know, the census, we have had um, an addition of a million folks since the last census, uh, predominantly to our metropolitan urban areas. And actually, eight out of the 13 congressional districts have increased in black population. So while our rural counties have decreased the population overall, they've actually increased in black and brown population. So our state in theory, and here's the thing, 80 out of 100 of our total counties are rural. And so when we talk about the power of the rural North Carolina, it is purple, right? But you begin to see the demographics of the state and say, okay, well, what? It should be a 50-50 split, right? But when we take into consideration the same, uh, in the same individuals who are engaged in map drawing right now, so we just ended our public hearing phase of the state congressional maps and, you know, public comment that wasn't fair, uh, the way they set that up. They actually didn't really give due process. You know, they didn't let communities know uh, ahead of time, some a few hours before when the committee, the public hearings would, uh, you know, happen. They also didn't give any online options. It had to be in person. So imagine a working class individual trying to get off work to make a hearing they didn't realize was going to happen. During COVID, during, co- during, during the pandemic. You, during COVID, thank you. And you think that would be almost mandated, like not just common sense, but we understand what it is, right? It's targeted. So that ended on September 30th. So we're in the phase of map drawing. There is no set deadline, except they have, the Republican leadership has said they hope to have it by October, like mid this month to November to have those final maps. Well, that gives folks who are interested in, you know, candidates who are interested in filing, that gives them one month to look at the maps to see if they're actually going to be in those districts to even run. Right. So you see this time, you know, this, this tight timeline. Local redistricting is about to happen. Right. The public comments. So this is time. But what we're already seeing is preliminary data that these districts are going to be skewed in the favor of, again, the party that's already in in control. What we're seeing is like the last time we went to the Supreme Court, they had a 10 to three. Right. And it was unconstitutional. They had 10 districts that, you know, they drew for themselves three for the minority party. And then they were they, you know, the Supreme Court said, okay, no, this is unconstitutional. They did it again. Ten to three. And then they said that was unconstitutional. And then they it was eight to five and it was allowed. Those are the districts that are up. But we're already seeing that they're saying they're drawing these districts based on no political data and no data on race. They're not using any racial data. That's unconstitutional. If you have black majority populations and now that we even have an increase, we absolutely need what they call majority minority districts, which creates districts that heighten the probability that black and brown folks can elect who they see. Right. Who they need its representation. That's constitutional. It's constitutionally written for you not to take in account race that already breaks the Stevenson law. That's how we're starting out already. So when we talk about purple state, when we talk about what does it mean, we're already going into litigation in mind. That's where we are already, (laughs) and we've just begun. And so that's where our communities are grappling with at the same time of saying we can't – guess what? Redistricting isn't a ballot referendum that we can just say we want to put the power in the hands of the citizens like California. It unfortunately is in our state's constitution that our elected leaders get to draw those maps. So then what are the options for our people? I just want to add one thing. When you layer these issues, redistricting, voter ID, uh, limiting voting based on someone's um, felony conviction, 
when you look at limiting the amount of days that you have to early vote, when you look at placing limits on um, how folks can absentee vote or vote by mail, all of these intersecting layered issues fell out way more than the vote margins needed for victory in uh, the midterms to shift the levels of power in government, even federally. And we can't just focus on why folks aren't turning out in a vacuum without looking at the process. It's almost looking at fish on the side of a lake and wondering why they're dead, like there's something wrong with the fish without examining the environment. And so I think it's very important that we look at these layering issues and how they have a larger impact than just motivating someone to go vote. Yeah, and that goes exactly into what we keep saying over and over again. And, and Marco said it last week that, you know, if we can do one thing uh, for our work this year, it's, it's making sure that we get money in the hands of the organizations like yours that are, you know, really doing the work every single day. I, I had a question that's sort of on those grounds, which is, you know, it's very important, as we've discussed, to have proper representation of people who are of the communities that they belong to, that are actually advocating that can fight back against folks who are in their own party necessarily uh, by actually being able to oppose systemic oppression, racism, and all of those things. What work, I guess this is a very broad question, but how can we go about ensuring that North Carolinians, especially black and brown folks within their communities, rural North Carolinians can get access to eventually running for office? I know that we're talking about just economic survival, but it's difficult to move forward without that proper representation. Very good question. At uh, North Carolina Black Alliance has a 501c4 organization, um, Advanced North Carolina, that works to do exactly what you mentioned, holding power accountable and building independent power to the point to where we can find individuals in community, turn them from activists to advocates, to organizers, to elected officials, or to at least political candidates. Uh, at the same time that we mentioned these barriers or impediments to voting, we have to recognize that we have to bring more working class people into the political system. Uh, we saw in 2020 and even before a wave of individuals uh, that have been protesting police brutality. And then we saw a turn of events in certain areas where mothers of the movement began running for office. We need to continue to see that. Um, just like we saw individuals stand up for women's rights, uh, in 2016, stand up for uh, against gun violence. We need to see those individuals from Parkland High School running for office. We need to see those um, moms that were wearing their hats, taking those hats right into the General Assembly. We have done all we can. We're the home of Dr. Barber, the Moral Monday movement. We know about protesting here in North Carolina, uh, and we, it, it, we do it almost second nature. What we have to do now is turn the corner and put folks in elected office. But I will say this. The rules of engagement still state that you have to have money in the system in order to change the process. This is a million billion dollar enterprise, enterprise, even in North Carolina, when we talk about running for office. But on a local level, it still only takes five dollars or 20 dollars to register to run for mayor, to run for a city council office. And we have to make sure that we're building that groundswell. But we have to get better candidates in. Um, not taking anything away from the candidates that ran in 2020. We had a slate of candidates and even all the way back to looking at Georgia and Stacey Abrams. It's, it is proof positive that when you put a good candidate in community that meets the issues where the voters are, then they will do the right thing at the ballot box. And so it's important 
when we are out here uh, doing our conversations in the C4 space, we're building county tables. These county tables are where elected leaders come together to create that change, endorse candidates, and then eventually run for office themselves. And these people-led, community-led endorsements from a C4 are exactly the dynamic we need to change the balance of power that dictates how much money you have shows how much success you'll have in elected office. If we can continue to push folks that represent us, that have been in community fighting with us, knocking on doors, talking about the issues, going to the General Assembly, if we can put those folks in position to run for office and actually win, then we'll see a better shift in our electorate. But that's a very good question. My God, Marcus, I'm like, I want to high five you. <laughs> this is this is like, this is the meat. You know, we talk about, we talk about Stacey Abrams. Stacey Coast was one of the first organizations to actually fund her primary campaign when everybody was saying that, no, we have to go with that other boring white woman because... George is really conservative and the end result of her running. Yeah, she lost because of voter suppression and uh, uh, and cheating by the Republicans, but she created the catalyst that showed that a black candidate, a black progressive could win. It increased engagement in those critical communities in Georgia, and it led to the runoff election in last year's Senate race, which again showed the black community that somebody like Raphael Warnock was a real credible challenge. And unlike the past, where Georgia Republicans used, and not even Republicans, Democrats back in the day when they were the Dixiecrat times, they used the runoff as a way to prevent black candidates from winning statewide. They had created a system to explicitly exclude non-white candidates. It bit them because the black community was so excited that they had somebody like Warnock to to run. And so it, it increased turnout in the runoff election. And now we have two Democratic senators. And it was like that. It was 600,000 new voters voting for, for Democrats, Joe Biden and Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in Georgia. And then I look at North Carolina. I'm going to bring it back to North Carolina. And it's like boring white guy after boring white guy after boring. Like, what's going on? Where are the like? Do we have dynamic, exciting candidates that look like our base on tap for 2020? Because the, the Senate race is an open seat. And I have to assume... We have a lot of people looking at this, right? Absolutely. And this goes back to what I said earlier, and I want to make sure I say this very clear. We destroy the next Stacey Abrams by in, in, in this belief that the Democratic Party will invest in black candidates or candidates of color the same way they invest in the same more traditional white candidates. Think about the number of folks in, in uh, positions running for local office that, or even state or federal office that if they would have gotten the same look that Stacey got just because she was an established senator and, of course, because of her agenda was incredible. But oftentimes it doesn't happen. And even thinking back to 2008, Barack Obama didn't get elected because the Democratic Party had a, a shift in process around supporting candidates of color. He had to beat throughout every primary battle, even up until the convention, before the Democratic Party got behind him. And then whenever the president did have both chambers, Look at how hard it was to get simple things done in the political process. I don't know if the Democratic establishment expected Warnock and Ossoff to win. I don't know if anybody's ever said that on this show. And I, don't know, I hope I'm not uh, hurting our, our odds of support, but I think uh, people undermine the Southern political strategy. And that's why I'm glad that the Daily Coast has really doubled down on exactly where you need to be. The If America is in this predicament, then the community of impact is the Southern community, that Southern constituency. When we look at January 6th, 
we see how aligned the right is. They're connected at every single level from uh, nonpartisan, nonprofit organizations to C3C4s to PACs to the actual Republican infrastructure. But on the left, it takes 10, 30, 40 times more pushing just to get them to acknowledge Black women on the ballot. Uh, in North Carolina, we had four Stacey Abrams running. We had four attorneys running for statewide races for, superior, for Supreme Court justice for um, state level races in the governor's cabinet. Uh, there was an individual, there were individuals running there and the democratic establishment did not get behind those candidates. They went with the same old cut and paste uh, individual. And guess what? They got the same old cut and paste indiscretion that undermine that race. Truth be told, the democratic establishment would have been more happy seeing Cal Cunningham make it from North Carolina than seeing Ossoff and Warnock get in from Georgia, because what that represents is a shift in the electorate. Imagine if our moral compass on the progressive side was Barbara Lee, instead of depending on Klobuchar and Manchin to save our voting rights. But two or three weeks ago, we were ready to throw the baby away with the bathwater, including voter ID, by allowing Manchin and Klobuchar to compromise and hold the line on voter on voting rights for the entire government. So I think to answer that question, North Carolina is at the cusp right now. We have a very tight Senate race that is going to change the shape of uh, the political prospects in North Carolina for candidates of color for women in a huge way. And that's a ceiling that we have to crack. Uh, in North Carolina, we've been fortunate to see a number of um, black and brown candidates and women candidates run on local levels and state levels. But at this federal level, we have to make sure that we are telling and challenging the progressive infrastructure to support and get behind folks that don't look like them. Uh, and even challenging funders. A lot of times funders are scared to support um, election uh, movements that don't look like them. This whole idea of making America great again, it's equal to this um, Build Back Better plan. And we're saying the same thing on this side. So we have to realize that we are fighting as your organization at the Black Alliance, these other organizations, we are building up a new democratic process because this two-party system is only upholding the standard of white supremacy. And it is shown time after time. When Joe Biden got in office, the first thing he was supposed to do was fix voting rights. The second thing he was supposed to do was make sure that folks had jobs. Here we are still debating an infrastructure bill and about the compromise on all of our issues, including police brutality. Our agenda on a state level, folks get it. At the grassroots, folks get it. Some kind of way it stops at the federal level and there's almost like, you know, folks' ears are closed until it's time to vote. Then they want to scapegoat and blame our communities. And so I think for North Carolina, we have to be unapologetically Black, unapologetically Latinx, unapologetically LGBTQIA, because at every step of the way, when we undermine that, we allow for the traditional white-led, white male-dominated system to continue to cause harm in our democracy. Yeah, goodness. <laughs> uh, I, again, also want to give a high five, and I'm just like, this is speaking everything that we've been talking about and, and hoping for. And uh, LA, um, I have a question for you regarding, you know, we, we keep using the example of Stacey Abrams, and it's this incredible thing that, you know, she's, of course, I don't want to take anything from Stacey. She's incredible, but it's one of those things where she's like the most overqualified, exceptional, you know, all of these things on like standard Eurocentric ways that we measure success and competence. And all of you were speaking earlier about having like the working class be actually represented in our electorate, be actually represented in office. And so my my question, my larger question is uh, also speaking about police brutality, where 
we've talked a lot on this show about how folks wanted to blame Black Lives Matter and the uprising of last summer as to why there wasn't this like incredible uh, win or that, you know, defunding the police is suppressing votes or whatever, right? All of that nonsense. And we have made the argument that that actually has further engaged and reinvigorated our political process and brought people in that otherwise would not be brought in. And have you all seen that on the ground in North Carolina? Do you see this this building of momentum off of people who are finally being able to be heard on a national level through protests or unfortunately through violence uh, in the case of George Floyd and the uprisings? So protest is the uh, pulpit of the impoverished. Protest is the pulpit of the impoverished. And it is our constitutional right to do so. Nothing is new under the sun. We hear that as an antiquated, that's a Southern colloquial saying, right? Nothing new under the sun may even be biblical, y'all. When we came out of slavery into emancipation, right, we saw slave patrols turn into convict leasing. At the same time, in eastern North Carolina, there were 187 North Carolina Black residents who became elected officials, only between 25 and 30 years after the Civil War. That response to that political power that was rapidly gained, that ascension, was gerrymandering. And it was called the Black Second, where they packed parts of Eastern North Carolina into single districts to dilute their power. Sounds like 2021. When we saw going into the civil rights movement and the student nonviolent coordinating committee and guess what? That protest of one man, one vote that's now known as one person, one vote that was birthed in part here in North Carolina at our HBCUs that then became enshrined into law when the Supreme Court case Baker v. Carr was passed in 1965, which is what makes it illegal to gerrymander on the basis of race. It's not illegal to gerrymander on the basis of partisanship. But it's because of the youth protest that was happening at the same time of the church burnings, because everyone didn't agree. Mm. That was happening at the same time of the sit-ins, as Marcus mentioned, A&T, that was happening at the same time, right, that we had to do mutual aid and concerted efforts. We saw uh, celebrity comedians, uh, uh, literally Black actors, were flying in planes during this civil rights movement to help folks move materials, Mutual aid is nothing to us. And then guess what? In 2018, there was hurricanes and we had to move planes to drop relief to our people because we're undercounting in the census. At the same time that we were fighting gerrymanders in the Supreme Court, at the same time that Black Lives Matter movement was talking about defund slave patrols, excuse me, defund convict leases, excuse me, defund, no, the police. It's the same chant. It's a different market. It's the same impact. We've just had to rebrand it because they keep rebranding our oppression so that it keeps being marketable. So did it detract from a movement when the movement is a cycle or does it continue to move the pendulum where it should swing? Because that is the only mode of protest that we can afford, because we know black candidates are historically, uh, you know, under resourced when it comes time for fundraising for these campaigns. So we have to hit the pavement. We have to march during more Monday. And thank you to Dr. Barber. We have to do this because that is how we allow our voices to be echoed. And here's the thing. Black Lives Matter movement, that protest went global. And we heard that. Last year, oh my goodness, global civil rights movement. The civil rights movement was global as well in the 60s because We Shall Overcome was heard, guess what, in Ireland when they were marching for their freedom. It was heard the Berlin Wall when it fell. It was heard in Tiananmen Square when the students actually sang We Shall Overcome because it was a song of emancipation. 
were good at what we do, and that's survival, because they thought, really, right, they thought that they buried us. They didn't realize we were seeds, and I love that quote. And so did it detract from the movement? It absolutely didn't. We have to have, and we have to support youth protesting. We have to support what the folks are saying on the ground, because that's policy. We just devalue and disrespect what they're saying. But when they say defund the police, they're saying reallocate the budget to reimagine what safety means when we need social workers instead of violence, when we need psychologists and mental health has been defunded for years. So no, it didn't detract from the movement because like I said, that's our pulpit to do what we need to do because we can't sometimes fundraise to be in the elected positions that we deserve to be in. Yeah, um, Democrats got eight mil- Joe Biden got eight million more votes than Hillary Clinton. So just objectively, it's hard to argue that it detracted from the movement or that it hurt Democrats when it actually dramatically increased, including in places like Georgia and Arizona and Michigan, and even in North Carolina. That gap has has closed. So uh, we're almost, unfortunately <laughs> time went by so fast. We're almost out of time. So I have two really quick questions. One is, is there anybody in that Senate race that might run that you guys are excited about? Somebody that we can then take a look at and, you know, and, and maybe do some early support. Uh, and then two, just here's a chance to like tell our readers and our viewers and our listeners what they can do to help your work. And I know we talked about it earlier, but let's 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 drive that home right now. So I'll, I'll speak to uh, who's on the ballot and, and kind of give you a general sense of who is running and let you make the best decision. So we mentioned uh, time and time again about a North Carolina Supreme Court chief justice that made history. Uh, Sherry Beasley already has her name in the hat as one of the top front runners and is expected to be uh, the one that lands home. But in a close second and third, uh, we have a current sitting senator, Jeff Jackson, who is running. And in this case, we also have an individual that ran against Cal Cunningham last year, Marco. So we're bringing this whole idea of 2020 back into the fold with Erica Smith, House uh, State Senator Erica Smith, also running for um, the same Senate race. There's also a doctor uh, that works in um, a, a very dynamic way with um, uh, medicine, medical research. His name is Dr. Richard Watkins. And every single day, it seems like somebody new is throwing their name in the hat. But as far as contenders, uh, those uh, four are primarily where voters are looking at and they have built all the intensity around their campaigns. Can't say who we're going to vote for, who we're going to make a decision for, but we'll be pushing folks to make sure that they recognize the history that can be made on this ballot by electing a black woman, because we think that um, it's of significance just by knowing that they could make history if they make the right decision. And, you know, ways that folks can support us to reiterate, as Marcus said before, is making sure that our people can be in community year round, not just helicopter in. And so that definitely takes the level of support, general operating expense to invest in the capacity that we need and to actually be able to hire within community, which is what we do very well. And we didn't really mention that, but we do actually hire from community and from HBCUs and um, really honored to, to know that we're creating that legacy, but also we support other community organizations. So when you're actually donating to us, you're donating to many grants that oftentimes we give to community groups that don't have that 501c3 status or don't have the relationships as we know that sometimes being in you know the funder world looks a little bit different. Um, there's a little bit of gatekeeping. And so we can sometimes fiscally sponsor up to 11 to 15 organizations. And so we even now um, are breaking off a little bit of what we have uh, to be able to support folks who are doing the good work. They're actually doing research to prove how their water has been contaminated. And they're literally choosing areas from identifying how 
jails and prisons have contaminated water that are killing folks upon release to prenatal care. And us being able to do that means we're being responsive in community. And so just support NorthCarolinaBlackAlliance.org, 501c3. We you know do accept donations on the Ag Blue and also 501c4s Advanced Carolina. But thank y'all for having us. It's definitely a good time. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. I know for a while they were saying you might not be able to make it because of scheduling issues. And I am so incredibly excited that you were able to make it. You brought so much incredible energy and, and, and knowledge to this conversation. And, and we wouldn't have had that without you joining us. So thank you so much for joining us. Marcus, thank you so much for joining us as well. I'm really excited and in awe of the work that you all do. It is my mission in life now to make sure organizations like yours are, have the resources you need to do to serve your communities and truly grateful for everything you do. So thank you so much for joining us and thank you even more for the work that you do. Thank, thank you. you so and much. likewise, thank you both. Likewise, you all do amazing work. It was a pleasure to be on for just a small minute. We enjoyed it and please invite us back. And we'll, if oh, not, we we'll will. continue to watch and follow. <laughs> we absolutely will. Thanks so much. Kara, um, we are actually out of time. We're a little bit over time, so we have to wrap up. But um, really, that's my mission now. It, it, I mean, it has to be because the work that they do is, is so much above and beyond anything that I can even, I can't even begin to appreciate my or express my appreciation yeah. for the that kind of hard work. And so I urge everybody to... Um, support these organizations that we are featuring. And you don't even have to support these organizations. There are organizations working in your own backyard doing the hard work of supporting your communities. Really, yeah, it's great. Support those, you know, fancy candidates when Stacey Abrams runs for governor. We're all going to donate, yes. But also look at these organizations doing the long-term infrastructure building. Just a quick last thought that I, I just want to hammer in what all of our guests have been saying over and over, especially these last two weeks that I've been able to co-host. It's been so much fun. Thank you for having me on, Marcos, is, you know, this is about people, right? And and this is really about people. This isn't about winning or losing this uh, or winning or losing as like a team or or for sport. This is about people who are really being impacted in communities that need our help, especially now more than ever with the pandemic. And I just... I cannot hammer that enough. So thank you again for having me on. And thank you so much to, to all of our guests who have been so wonderful. Thank you so much, everybody. We uh, have an app blue page with all the organizations we have been featuring. We're going to keep adding to that every week as we bring new organizations to the show. It's an app blue link. We'll add it to, to the, the YouTube, to the Kara, we can add it to the podcast description, right? Okay, great. So wherever you're getting your podcast, that link should be there. So please, 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 please uh, really consider donating to the organizations and make it a sustainable one if you can. So even if it's $5 a month through, you know, five, 10 organizations, whatever, it, you know, it helps. It helps a great deal. So thank you so much, Kara, for, co- for guest co-hosting these last couple of weeks. It's always great to have you and your insights into these conversations. Thanks to Walter Einenkelt for producing the show. And thank you, the reader, viewer, and listener, for joining us every week. We wouldn't be doing this show. We couldn't do the show without you. And together, we are going to make this a better country. So thank you so much for joining us. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.